certain Chinese IPOs that are listed over there. Do you think there's much chance of that happening? Uh, that's pretty unlikely in the current environment of U.S.-China relations. I, I, I think it, it's clear the direction of, of the Chinese government is they prefer uh, big Chinese companies, merchant companies, not make the U.S. their, their destination of choice, and they make it uh, Hong Kong or Shanghai the preferred listing destination. So uh, I would say that's a bit of uh, polite, diplomatic, bureaucratic speak, but I wouldn't expect it. And also, any kind of loosening or, or, or attempt by the SEC to negotiate something that that, that, that is a, a relaxation of, of U.S. regulations or a softening or not, uh, a really strict implementation when it comes to Chinese companies is going to come under enormous uh, criticism from the U.S. Congress. Okay, Ross, thanks very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Sapro Group in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning, the SX200 in Australia still flat. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up half a percent. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea up 0.2 percent. And looks like a small rally for the Hang Seng at the open, also of about 0.2 percent. Gold is trading at $1,811 an ounce. Brent crude oil at $70.56 a barrel. Do please do tune in again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk and stay tuned to Radio 3 for Back Chats with Jim Gould and Jenny Lamb in just a moment. The weather forecast, cloudy with occasional showers, thunderstorms and squalls. There is a thunderstorm warning in force at the moment. The maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees and then occasional showers in the next couple of days. And then the weather's going to improve gradually during the weekend. 27 degrees right now, 91% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. With the exception of Guangdong, all arrivals from the mainland will once again have to go into quarantine as COVID cases continue to grow across the border. The Hong Kong government announced the move just before 9 o'clock last night. Earlier, it had placed the same restrictions on Macau. Yesterday, Macau began testing its entire 600,000 population after a family contracted the highly infectious Delta variant. Richard Pine reports. There will now be no quarantine exemption for mainland arrivals unless they have just been in Guangdong in the previous two weeks. Instead, Hong Kong residents returning from the mainland under the Return to HK scheme will have to do 14 days of home quarantine. They face three tests during that period and two afterwards, only becoming free from testing on the 20th day. The shorter seven-day quarantine period for fully vaccinated people no longer applies. Infectious diseases expert Leung Chi Chu welcomed the government's move, but he said quarantine arrangements should also be tightened and that arrivals should stay at designated hotels rather than at home. For areas, for airports, uh, with long risk of outbreak, uh, long cases of outbreak, we need to uh, tighten it up uh, to make it composed arrangement uh, for quarantine at uh, designated hotels. And we should consider that uh, if we see community uh, transmission within uh, Macau within the next few days uh, in their compulsory testing. The overnight compulsory COVID testing operations at a block of flats in Shamshui Po and at a hotel in Chimsatoy have been completed with health authorities so far finding no cases.
Officials said they'd tested a total of 730 people, with the exercise ending just before 7am. At about 8 o'clock last night, the government cordoned off Block A of Tunglo Court on Taipo Road and the Lux Manor Hotel on Kimberley Road. The buildings had been linked to two possible COVID cases, a construction worker with no travel history and a local student. The latter is a close contact of the Macau family with the Delta variant. The government also issued compulsory testing notices for 22 locations. They include two construction sites in Wan Chai, a Fairwood restaurant in Shepkip May and another in Wan Chai, a welcome supermarket on Nathan Road in Jordan and Immigration Tower. The World Health Organization has urged wealthy governments to halt plans for coronavirus booster jabs and instead concentrate on improving vaccination rates in poorer countries. The head of the agency, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said he could not accept that vulnerable people would remain unprotected while the richest were vaccinated for a third time. But the White House press spokesman, Jen Psaki, disagreed this was the case. We feel that it's a false choice uh, and that we can do both. We've taken action on the global level uh, far more than any country around the world. We're asking the global community to also step up. We saw some action on, at the G7. More needs to happen. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host this morning is Jenny Lamb. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, everybody. So this morning, our main topic uh, is uh, the prospect of housing construction in areas surrounding Hong Kong's wetlands. The Development Secretary, Michael Wong, said this week that the administration would consider loosening restrictions in the 1,000 hectares of buffer zones surrounding the Deep Bay Wetland Conservation Area in the Northern New Territories. He said their development potential had to be considered and a panel within his bureau would examine whether plot ratios in the areas could be increased. But the statement drew a backlash from environmentalists. Uh, green groups said allowing higher density development would affect the whole wetland habitat as fish ponds and wetlands provide food and habitat for migratory birds. What do you think? Would this be a useful way to provide much-needed new housing? Would the environmental cost be too great? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page at Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.com. HK or give us a call on 233-88266. And later in the programme we'll be talking about uh, the increasing incidence of the red tide phenomenon in Hong Kong waters. Well, joining us uh, for our main subject this morning um, in our Admiralty studio, we have uh, Ryan Yip, who's uh, Head of Land and Housing Research with the uh, Hong Kong Foundation. And uh, on the line, um, we have uh, Dr. Rita Lee, who's Director of Sustainable Real Estate uh, uh, Research and Associate Professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Xu Yan University. And also on the line, um, Albert Lai, who's Director of the Conservancy Association. Um, right, Ryan Yip, uh, if we can come sure. to you first. Uh, uh, so um, thanks for joining us. Um, so um, do you think it's a good idea to um, ease restrictions uh, on development um, in these areas surrounding the wetlands? Uh, right. At first, I think we need to understand the concept better for the uh, red wetland areas first. There are actually uh, three layers of uh, concept. The, the first one is the Ramsar site. Uh, that is protected by the UNESCO Ramsar Convention 
and that also includes the MIPO, you know, nature reserve. And then you have the wetland conservation area that is uh, stipulated by the town planning board, Gainai, and that is uh, that 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 also include the uh, Ramsar area. That is around seventeen hundred hectare area, and there is also a buffer, a five hundred meter buffer mm. uh, <laughs> outside the WCA, uh, and that is called the wetland buffer area, and that. The whole area of wetland buffer areas is around 1,200 uh, hectare, and right now, uh, development is theoretically possible in the wetland buffer area, the WBA. Mm. Well, as mm. long as you satisfy certain criteria that is set by the TBP guideline, including, for instance, you know, no wetland loss, no, no net loss policy on the wetland. Uh, indeed, there are already 40% of the WBA that are zoned as suitable for residential development. Uh, but, uh, of course, in reality, the plot ratio of these areas is pretty low. It is ranging from, you know, 0.2 to 0.4, uh, mm. which is pretty low. Mm. So that's why there is not mm. a lot of development mm. In the WBA, that's only enough for low density housing, right? Mm. So I think, um, yes, I think the government can review the WBA guideline uh, whether the uh, plot ratio can be uh, increased. Uh, but the bottom line is, you got to uh, balance the lead of conservation and development. And uh, but having said that, um, many of the areas in the WBA, I think. Um, more than 90% of the areas in the WBA are not wetlands. Uh, they are either brownfields because they are already there uh, before the TBB guideline was in place, uh, or they are you know vacant land, um, or you know uh, the, uh, the 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 wetland uh, because the, because the wetland in Hong Kong are man-made. They are most of them are fish ponds, uh, and uh, a lot of them. Uh, have been dried up in the, in the past 20 years. So what I think the government should do is um, to review the guideline of WBA to promote active conservations, right? Because uh, conservation is not about doing nothing. You know, uh, if you have you have to maintain this fish pond or restore or restore the fish ponds, you gotta that that the time, the uh, resources, the supervision, need management. So I think what the government should do is to promote active conservation, to restore the wetland, and at the same time, to look at whether there are ways to increase the plot ratio in the area so that um, development and conservation can be in place together. Do you think it can be done, uh, a high-density development uh, plus conservation? Well, I, I think so. It depends on uh, the first of all, I think it depends on the design of the buildings. Well, whether the building heights are a lot too high, and then whether you have enough uh, uh, corridor for the for the migrant birds uh, to migrate, and whether you have reserved enough areas to restore the wetlands. And we also have uh, many successful examples overseas. You know, for example, uh, in the UK, they have the London Wetland Centre. Uh, originally, the, there were there were uh, 30 hectares of land that is owned by the Conservation Trust, and then uh, they sold 
10 hectares of land to the developers to develop uh, for residential and commercial developments, and then to, to and then they use the receipt of the of that uh, residential and commercial developments to conserve the remaining 20 hectares of land, and that becomes a wetland, a London wetland centre, and that you know that is uh, quite a successful example. So, Mr. If I mean, as you mentioned earlier, it's only meant for low density housing. Does that not make a poor argument for developing a, a conservation area um, in order to, to solve some of Hong Kong's housing shortage? If it's only low density, it doesn't provide a lot of housing. I think uh, uh, you can look at it two ways. First, I think um, the government can actually review the guideline to look at whether it is possible to increase the uh, uh, plot ratio of the land. Uh, as I said, um, whether you can whether you can preserve the, whether you can uh, uh, better conserve the areas does not necessarily depends on the density, right? It de well, density is one thing, but it all but also important is the design and you know you know and, and, and other aspects of the of the development. So as long as uh, it satisfies certain guidelines, uh, I think it is possible to look at whether it's possible to increase the density of the housing. Indeed, uh, there were already two government sites within the WBA that were sold, and the plot ratio of t these two sites are three. Uh, the plot ratio were three. Uh, so I think um, it shows that it is possible to have a slightly higher density of housing, yet you can still uh, uh, do good conservation. But I suppose the argument is why why this particular area, uh, which is so sensitive, is pr protected under the Ramsar Convention, which is an international convention. Why here? Why not somewhere else? Why can't uh, you have the development somewhere else? Right. I think um, first of all, the, uh, first of all, the WBA is outside the uh, Ramsar site. It is a buffer areas, and secondly, uh, right now. A lot of the lands in the WBAs are poorly managed. A lot of them are brownfields. You know, a lot of them are fish ponds that have that have been dried up. So, um, if there is a chance uh, for you to uh, actively promote conservation in these areas, so you can actually increase the ecological values of the whole areas, and at the same time, maybe you can do a little bit more development on that. That's the second point. The third point is. Really, the whole area is undergoing development. The, the, the anti-west, anti-northwest areas is really undergoing the development in the future. You have the northern link that is uh, being planned, and you have also the uh, Santin, not Marjau development loop, and you also uh, and the government also have the land use review in Outamay areas. So I think uh, these whole areas is undergoing development in the future. So I think that would be a suitable timing for the government to review uh, the guideline of the WBA. Okay, well, we also have uh, uh, Dr. Rita Lee from uh, uh, Xu Yan University. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Um, uh, do you agree with that? Um, and we could have uh, more development um, in that area, um, and plus, um, you know, enhanced uh, conservation measures? Well, um, actually, that area around the buffer uh, area is about uh, uh, 1,000 hectares, as uh, what you have mentioned. And then if we try to raise that by like 0 0.1 in, uh, in terms of like plot ratio, meaning 100 hectare of land can be released. So take uh, Tai Kuching as an example. It has 
21.5 hectares consists of like 61 residential towers with mm. uh, with a total of like uh, 12,698 apartment flats. So if we can re- uh, raise the top ratio by 0.1 in the wetland buffer area, we can now build near five more Taiko Shin and then uh, accommodating more than 60,000 housing units for right. which that we can build. And it means that, say, for instance, uh, if, we, uh, if we just uh, take an average, uh, three person within the housing unit uh, for each of them. Yeah. So it means that uh, uh, 180,000 yeah. housing mm. units can be built. Mm. So that is uh, actually that means that we can have a lot more housing units uh, by the time that we try to uh, release that a bit. And then, uh, take, uh, uh, and then another another thing that we have to consider is, so what actually is the buffer elements? So for buffer elements in Queensland, for example, it is actually a kind of like natural and artificial features or management activities within the wetland buffer area that can protect the wetland from direct pressures. So uh, these buffer elements are actually site-specific and then they, are, they have got some artificial features. So... How can we deal with the artificial features? Take Singapore as an example. I guess that many of us, that by the time we go to Singapore, we take a train, and then we find that there are a lot of the buildings. Now they have got a vertical garden, not just a rooftop garden. So it means that by the time we have got vertical garden, the whole building in itself, that there are some of the, uh, some of maybe not whole buildings, but then it is like you can see outside the wall, there are some of the plants, some of the uh, plants still go there. And then... Um, it can uh, reduce the negative impact of human being by the time we try to uh, we try to make everything as like uh, 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 as a, a built environment. But of course, that there is something for which that we cannot uh, uh, we cannot avoid, which includes the light pollution, because actually there are some of the birds and some of the natural habitats that they. Uh, they may not fly, for example, the birds, that migratory birds may not fly to their areas by the time they find that there are so much lighting uh, uh, there as a kind of light pollution. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, so what we can deal with uh, is like what uh, Queensland do is that they try to make it as artificial uh, features that try to support that buffer area, even though that we have got some kind of development. And of course, it does not mean that we try to develop the whole buffer area uh, but then we try to uh, uh, try to see, like for example, some of the buffer area in Hong Kong that they have got fish pond, they have already been destroyed. They are brown field uh, 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 area for which that some buildings were built there already. Then of course we try to do in that particular areas, and then um, so this is what I uh, what I think. So, Dr. Okay. Lee, I mean, you, you just mentioned vertical gardens. Uh, My pole has large migratory birds. One of the birds here is the black-faced boonbill, and they have herons and stuff. Does that work with vertical gardens? Well, actually, uh, vertical garden it just implies that it may make the natural env- it may make the environment built environment not like a concrete jungle. So it means that there may be some kind of like uh, plants that is planted on there. It looks more close to the natural environment only. It does not mean that it is it is hundred percent similar to the natural environment, which is just, uh, which is impossible. So um, this is a way for which that we can. Uh, at least that we can do something to cause, uh, to minimize the harmful impacts to natural environments, which includes, like, for example, lower the carbon emission, and then uh, at the same time that the birds may find that they still have got areas for, like, uh, for example, making a nest there, for example. 
uh, that is try to like minimize. It does not mean that it 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 it, uh, it can like hundred uh, percent restore the area. But then how we can like uh, make the birds feel that if it's still at home to them, then we may need to consider like what kind of plants that will be planted there because like, that actually makes a difference. And then uh, how the later property management try to deal with it because a lot of circumstances, vertical garden uh, may involve a lot much more mosquitoes, for example. And then, uh, so it means that you have uh, you have to like uh, try to do something to deal with, but at the same time, not to destroy the environment, not to like put too much uh, 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 man-made uh, pesticides that uh, that may cause harmful to that uh, particular <clears throat> environment. Okay, well, let's get a response from Albert Lai, director of the Conservancy Association. Um, good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank, thanks, thanks for uh, hanging on. Thanks, th- uh, thanks for your patience. Um, so um, h- how do you react to what you've heard so far? Well, I think um, let's take a holistic view. Uh, and for that, we need, we need to look, to, uh, look at two points first. One is about science. The other is about priority. Now, first about science. Um, the entire setup um, to protect the uh, Ramses size including the buffer zones. They have been around for decades in Hong Kong, and they are put there for a reason. Hong Kong in the past has been a successful uh, model to protect these Ramses sites, primarily because we have successful buffer zones. Uh, So buffer zones are part and partial of our obligation to protect those uh, sensitive Ramses sites. I mean, they're not just put there, you know, for fun. in fact, for those who do not understand uh, the scientific importance of the buffer zones, I would invite you to look at the dozens of scientific papers that have been published over the past decades you know, by you know, many of our academics, uh, professionals in Hong Kong. And they have proven time and again that when the buffer zones are uh, deteriorated, uh, the Ramsar size or the biodiversity there you know, will deteriorate as well. So in other words, if we are talking about compromising the functions of the uh, realms, uh, of the buffer zones, you know, by allowing more development and so on, definitely we, are, we will be compromising the integrity uh, of those realms of size. And this is coming in a time that is totally amazing to me. I mean, China is a host of the uh, UN Biodiversity Con- uh, Convention uh, in the coming October in Kuanyin. And I think uh, the scientific community in the world actually are talking about uh, the second biggest challenge next to climate change, which is about the biodiversity laws. So Hong Kong has an obligation to protect our Ramsarites better uh, and, uh, and not going into the reverse. I mean, okay, that's about science. The second is about priority. In Hong Kong, when we keep talking about housing development, um, the fact is that we have hundreds of hectares, even thousands of hectares of brownfield sites, of idle government lands uh, uh, that are waiting for development. I mean, and this has, again, this has, I mean, look at the papers that we produced over the past few years by many groups uh, and think tanks. Um, the question is that, uh, you know, why are the government not focusing on those sites? Um, and that, uh, I mean, for those brownfield sites, I mean, uh, and even quite a lot of them actually are government lands. 
well, the government just had to resume those biofuel sites. I mean, they can produce easily more than five types of things, you know, uh, uh, you know, as someone has mentioned earlier. So um, I just cannot see why we have to sacrifice uh, the integrity of our Ramsar sites, of our most sensitive Ramsar sites, uh, of which uh, Hong Kong has an obligation, has an international obligation to protect, you know, in order to develop uh, low-priority sites. Uh, in order to develop uh, for, for housing, I mean, where, when, when we have other ease, other better sites for development. What do you think? Of, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Jenny. Yeah. What What do you think of uh, Ryan Nitz and Rita Lee's suggestion that maybe there are certain um, uh, things that we can do to mitigate the damage? Rita Lee suggested vertical gardens. What What What, what do you think? Will that work? <laughs> I don't think vertical gardens are really for for buffer zones. I mean, that, that may be that might be a plus uh, for in urban areas. Um, but in talking about biodiversity, I haven't seen any single scientific paper to support the fact that you know having vertical gardens will support biodiversity uh, uh, like those websites. Um So so and, and the fact that uh, okay, I obviously agree to the fact that you know obviously we we can have more active management. Uh, for the for, for for in the buffer zones and to protect the wetlands. Now, the fact is that we are already doing this. Conservancy Association exactly doing this for you know for 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 decades. Um, and that um, you, you know okay okay. I mean we can encourage the government to do more. Uh, but that's a person uh, 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 you know the fact that if we are to allow any development there in the buffer zones, then we will compromise the integrity of the exercise ultimately. Mm. Um, uh, Ryan Ip was making the point that, uh, that that area of the Northern New Territories obviously being uh, close to the border um, it's likely to see uh, further development uh, in the future so, so uh, the, the area itself is not necessarily uh, the wrong place to look, uh, to look for development um, um, w- how do you feel about that? Well I think that actually supports my point the fact that you know our neighbours are developing these sites means that we have to protect our own better, right? Because, well, I mean, we are part, part and partial of a, of a habitat, of an important habitat in the South China coast. Now, we know as a fact, you know, that many sites are in other Chinese coastal cities are deteriorating and so on. Now, so that means the Ramsar sites in Hong Kong are getting more important and we need to put in more resources to protect it better. It's not the other way around. Okay, and, uh, and that is something China agrees. I mean, that is why it's hosting this biodiversity convention in Kuangming in October. Okay, okay. Uh, Ryan Ip, uh, the, the importance of those sites um, is increasing. I mean, shouldn't we really be looking elsewhere for development? One thing, I, I, one thing that I agree with Albert is um, these areas have been there for more than decades. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, this site, uh, th- this whole WBAWCA was set up uh, after 1997, and after the study of the uh, after the fish pond studies that was conducted in 1997, and that was almost 25 years ago. And over the past 25 years, a lot have changed. Uh, a lot of these sites has deteriorated. These sites has actually deteriorated because of the lack. of of maintenance, because of the lack of management, uh, because uh, many of the fish ponds has dried up. So it means that the current policies of doing nothing 
is not working. So what I said is we need a policy that promote active conservation. And uh, to me, conservation and development is not a either or problem. They, they, you, 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 you do not necessarily have to put them into direct confrontation. I mean, there are successful examples in the world, including Queensland, or what, what Dr. Lee has said, and including in the UK. That, I, I, I'm that, sorry that, about that, but you, 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 you are proposing a solution uh, to destroy the uh, to de- de- destroy those buffer zones even more. While you are saying that you know the government has not done enough to um, to uh, maintain its integrity. So this is the reverse. Of, this is not really a solution. I mean, this is the reverse of a solution. I mean, if, if they are deteriorating, yes, we should ask the government to protect it better, to, to uh, impose stricter uh, rules uh, in the buffer zones. Um, uh, that is the solution. The solution is not to, to, to allow for more development. So, Mr. Lai, I mean, the, 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 the proposal is to in, increase the plot ratio by 0.1. What kind of impact do you... Um, envisage for the I think I think that is a, that is a totally silly 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 suggestion. I mean, I, I think you've pointed out that. I mean, why do we want to destroy a whole piece of land by allowing a tiny development of 0.1? I mean, we can easily provide that sort of uh, GFA, you know, in other uh, uh, in other big brownfield size. I mean, why don't you increase brownfield size by 0.2, 0.3 uh, plot ratio? You know, and, and, and consider this uh, a totally unviable, uh, you know, quota solution uh, on uh, in a buffer zone. I mean, well, it's if, not if, okay. We have to look at the priorities. Okay, okay. We'll have to. Uh, we'll return to the uh, discussion um, after the nine o'clock news summary. We'll be going away for three minutes. Uh, um, Anybody wants to join in, um, uh, get in touch with us, uh, email us at uh, backchat at rthk.hk, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, or give us a call on 233882666. Quick look uh, at the weather. It's going to be cloudy uh, with uh, occasional showers, thunderstorms and squalls. Um, The outlook, there will still be occasional showers in the next couple of days. Uh, The weather will improve gradually during the weekend. It's currently 28 degrees, humidity 89%. We'll be back. Asking the global community to also step up. We saw some action at the G7. More needs to happen. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Backchat uh, with Jenny Lamb and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning, for our main topic, we're talking about uh, possible housing development in the uh, buffer zones uh, surrounding the wetlands in the northern New Territories. Um, Before we uh, resume our conversation with our guests, um, I've got got a few emails here. This one from Edward says, uh, Dear Backchat, uh, golf courses, wetlands, country parks, sports grounds, Star Ferry bus terminals, parks, west wings and even hawkers markets are repeatedly rolled out by the custodians of our public land in Hong Kong as the solution to Hong Kong's land shortages. These are surely chosen as they are highly emotive of a little land and distract the debate from the issue which is the deliberate lack of transparency of the process. Land banks held by the government 
government and private sector, as well as slowness of much-needed urban renewal. At the moment, in the whole of Hong Kong, the government can only find one plot of land to sell in Yun Long and oddly blames uh, their own uh, process that they've had 20 years to fix. Meanwhile, uh, LIBOR research have identified hundreds of sites that go unused. Please stop talking about emotive minuscule plots as there is plenty of land that could be developed. Do ask what the target for land supply is. Does the government have the will to actually increase supply or will they next suggest sitting out areas are the solution? Uh, that's from Ed. Um, uh, so a message from uh, Gruel writes, uh, Good morning. How safe are vertical gardens uh, during typhoons, as Hong Kong sees uh, many typhoons? Uh, and uh, this one uh, from Colin says, uh, What has happened to uh, all the other housing and land studies and recommendations that have been completed in recent years? Going nowhere, I suspect. The developers are sitting on large parcels of land. These should be used first. Leave the wetlands alone. It is just a distraction. And uh, just an idea of, uh, of uh, discussion going on on our Facebook page. Um, uh, Henry writes... Um, Housing is the single top problem in Hong Kong. Environmental concerns are only secondary and could be addressed. Let us look back. Numerous proposals, solutions for the housing problem have met numerous opposition from environmentalists, from vested interests, opposition, pandems, etc., resulting in delay, record waiting time for public housing and astronomical flat prices. Do those uh, raising objections want to see $100,000 per square foot and nobody in Hong Kong being able to afford any housing or any, or, or any subdivided flats? Do they want to, all in Hong Kong to go back to the 1950s and live in squatter areas because home prices are up as high as the astronauts or space station um martin in response says uh, uh, there are uh, well uh, his message along the lines of there are lots of brownfield sites and it's wrong uh, to blame environmentalists and paul says uh, hong kong's reproduction rate has been less than two children per family for a long time now the population should be falling here and so should the demand for property i wonder why uh, this isn't so um uh, 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 Dr. Lee, um, hi, you're still with us, Dr. Uh, Rita Lee from Xuyan University. Hi. hi. Uh, hello, hello. Um, yes. Dr. Lee, hi, hi, are you there? Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so, um, how how is the situation looking in terms of, you know, points that uh, some of our correspondents were making there that there is. There are plenty of brownfield sites around. Um, you know, why why aren't uh, why isn't the government focusing on those for development? And you know, uh, why are we looking at the buffer zones for for the wetlands? I think I will just uh, put it into like uh, if we if we try to see those photos in the 1950s or even earlier, you can see there are a lot of areas for which that they are uh, they they are, they are like uh, uh, green areas. There are a lot of like, plants and then trees, etc. Uh, this was the view by the time that we were in 1950s or even earlier. And then, uh, however, later on that you can see the city is developing. So this is something for which we cannot avoid in terms of the like, development. So we may try to find a lot of different solutions and I agree that actually the bound field site is the first priority. So uh, as what I said, even for wetland, what we have to do is to deal with those brownfield sites first. I'm not saying that we have to deal with those that is it's like uh, we, we, we have got uh, something for which like, we, we don't have any sort of like, human involvement and then we try to deal with that first. 
So as well as that, even for the wetland, uh, we have to deal with those like brownfield sites first. And then for those like uh, originally, if it's like a kind of uh, a kind of fish pond that nobody uh, nobody have uh, nobody is running now, and then that has already been uh, destroyed by human being. So we we try to look at those areas first, and then for the development, we are not seeing that we are trying to build like skyscrapers, but then uh, we are trying to have got some of the housing there only. So if we see like for example in Australia, for example, there are so many small houses that is around, and then the areas that still are. Uh, there are sort of uh, there's still a lot of like greenery scenery, and if we go to Virginia Tech, for example, that we we have seen some of the housing that is built uh, that, that that is built there, but then there are so many green areas around as well. So mm. it just implies that it just implies that what we try to do is not trying to develop the uh, develop it into a, a, a areas for which there's so many housing uh, something as how housing estates over there at once. But then uh, considering in the uh, development as what the government did now is uh, what we can do. That is, we try to see whether or not that it is possible. And brownfield site, of course, no matter what, it must be the first priority. For example, Kuntong, we have a lot of uh, industrial buildings. So, they are around, yeah. Yeah, so Ryan, if, um, I mean, what, what, what is your response? So, some of the, a couple of the emails pointed out that the, the developers are actually sitting on lots of plots that can be used and there's actually plenty well, of alternatives. Uh, <laughs> why my, why my pole? Okay, now, uh, if we call, if we talk about like, uh, Henderson land, for example, uh, the very famous one is uh, also in my pole, the famous, uh, uh, court cases which ultimately end up in PU, uh, PUV council. And then uh, the later, uh, the highest court, uh, highest level of court in Hong Kong. Uh, actually, in terms of development, it is not by the time that we want to develop something, it can turn to a piece of land which can be built. So in case of Henderson Land's case, it, ter- uh, it takes more than uh, a number of decades for later on. Ultimately, the government agrees to build. So it means that even though the brownfield sites that we have a lot of pieces of land, by the time we have to change the use of land, it takes a very, very long time. And then going back to one of the, uh, one of the, uh, emails and one of the feedback in the, uh, in the Facebook, actually, uh, by the time we talk about like brownfield sites, uh, we have a lot of the brownfield sites that is available in the, uh, in the pieces of land in Hong Kong, yes. But then uh, by the time that we have to develop, uh, actually we need some other external forces, probably, to apply for the change in use of land. And then this is available in the time plan for actually. Uh, so for those that are fundamentalists, they are well, I, I think they can actually try to, uh, try to, uh, go through that procedure. That is to try to help those, uh, uh try to help those, uh, brownfield sites and then apply for change in use of land, increase the plot, rate, uh, increase the plot ratio, uh, etc. But, uh, we cannot build, uh, uh, excessively. Why? Take the example of the North Pond. We have got the problem of, uh, uh, we, we have, uh, we, we, we have got a, a problem of road building. So for road building, it means that, uh, it means that there are so many blocks of towers that are so tall and high. And the leaving the, the, the wind pathway is just like almost that there is no green pathway at all. So that's what is happening in the, in the urban areas. And then, uh, they have got so many, uh, what we call as the needle buildings that try to go in between those like blocks and blocks and blocks of towers. So that's why that, uh, uh, that's why that, uh, the, the development, even though that we want to, like, stick it close to the transport areas for most of the circumstances, but we also, uh, uh, develop in some of the areas for which it's sparsely populated area. Uh, if they have already have gone some, gone through some of the human destruction, what we call it as a boundary site. 
Okay, um, so Ryan Yip, uh, we're talking about possible developments um, um, up, up there in the wetland areas. Um, what about the local infrastructure, um, roads and transport links and so on? I mean, uh, um, are they suitable to support a housing development around there? Right, uh, first, uh, before I, w I, w I want to respond one point uh, first, I think development does not equal to destroying the areas, right? It, it can also be improving the areas. It depends on what kind of development you are doing. Well, if you are turning a brownfield site into maybe a low-end residential development uh, with better environment, less pollution, and then you are also restoring uh, some of the wetlands, well, it might it, it will be improving the area. It will be increasing the ecological values of the area. So it depends on what kind of development it is. And the government has to be a gatekeeper on this. That's the first point. Uh, the second point on infrastructure, uh, right now there's only the Santin Highway that is connecting the areas and that is fully loaded. And that is, that's why I think uh, the development of the Northern Link is very important. Uh, the Northern Link is uh, linking up the West Rail and the East Rail and it's also adding three intermediate stations <coughs> along the side. You have the Santin Station, uh, the Altame Station, and also the Altao Stations. That is scheduled to be completed in 2034. And once this NOL is completed, the um, connectivity of the whole areas uh, would be improved. That's quite a long time frame, though, isn't it? 2034. That's another 13 years out. Well, I think, mm. I mean... Uh, land development in Hong Kong is actually uh, a, 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 a long a, a long term thing. I mean, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, developing a, if you're turning a piece of raw land into space ready land, it would it might take you know might take more than t ten years. I mean, uh, so one thing that we have accepted that is uh, in Hong Kong, developing land is uh, it takes time. Uh, Ryan, you, you did point out <coughs> earlier that you think there should be some more active um, conservation uh, policies. What, what exactly do you have in mind? Uh, I think the government has to promote uh, and encourage, uh, uh, or, or uh, promote and encourage a first of all, um, restore some of the fish ponds because they have been they have been dried up, and secondly, uh, you gotta have someone to manage and supervise all these uh, wetlands. And these can be done by, you know, having a, for example, having an environmental group, and then it can, you know, cooperate with developers. And it is exactly the model that is, that is being used in the UK. <coughs> they have the uh, National Conservation Trust, and then they will cooperate with developers uh, so, that the, so that the receipt of the residential and commercial development can be used by the Conservation Trust to do better promotion and, and do better conservations of the wetland. And that, I think these kind of PPP model can be explored. How do you respond to Albert Lai of the Conservancy Association's earlier suggestion that when you tamper with nature, that uh, the, the impact on biodiversity is irreparable? Oh, as, as I said, um, uh, development can also be improving uh, the, the, the areas. It can also be improving the ecological values of the areas. Well, if, if you restore the wetlands, you, you have the better management, it, it, will actually, it, it can actually be improving 
the ecological value. It just depends on whether the government will act as a gate, will act as a good gatekeeper to screen all the developments to make sure all these developments will meet the criteria. Okay, a few more emails uh, from listeners. Um, Paul writes, uh, Hong Kong's wetlands are a spectacular stopover for migratory birds. Let's all agree that we want to enhance the area for its ecological functions. Because of the ambivalent status of the buffer area, development is frozen and landowners are trashing their land in the hope of future development rights. For land where developers uh, have come up with interesting compensation schemes, whereby parts of the land are actively managed as wetlands in return for development rights. However, However, these proposals have fallen flat as a government has been unwilling to accept plans whereby the compensation areas are transferred to a nature foundation. Therefore, I welcome this review, but we need a clear focus on one, conservation of ecological functions, two, on repair of damaged lands, and three, sustainability. Uh, and also, Paul writes that vertical garden proponents have simply no clue about the reality. Vertical gardens are impossible to maintain given Hong Kong wind conditions. Um, Alan writes, uh, back chat, if you use the buffer zones for development, the inevitable effect will be to degrade the edge of the protected wetlands, making them, in effect, buffer zones. The, uh, this government is so afraid of offending the Hongi Cook that instead of taking the land occupied by junk containers in the new territories, they prefer to destroy what remains of Hong Kong's natural heritage. We will lose all our parks, urban and rural, before they will take on the rural strongmen who are allowed to illegally occupy land and break so many laws with impunity. And Andrew writes, uh, if you believe a mass... F uh, uh, OK, uh, this is... Actually, this is on another subject, so um, I'll save that one uh, till later. Um, uh, just... Sorry. Uh, just on that point um, about uh, vertical gardens, uh, 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 Dr Lee, you, you, you were suggesting yeah. they could be a mitigating factor in uh, developments yeah. around uh, wetlands. But, uh, I mean, is, is, is Hong Kong a suitable environment for vertical gardens? Of course. Suitable. I don't. I don't know why that it is not suitable. You know, in Hong Kong, in Nohus Park, the scientific park there, they actually have got a, uh, a building for which they have already installed a vertical garden with over ten story height. But does it mean that in those like uh, that 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 building is sort of like uh, they they cannot be uh, uh, they cannot face like typhoon? Of course not, because it's still survive there. <laughs> you can go. I mean, the one who put there that can uh, that he or she can actually go to, go there to see. So actually, for the vertical garden, it does not mean that it cannot survive during the typhoon. That that is not that is not true. Because if we just see that those like ten stories high of the vertical garden, vertical garden still survive, that means that it can survive uh, during the typhoon. But it only depends on how you manage it, number one. Number two is that by the time we talk about like uh, those, like, uh, uh, we talk about the red land buffers, uh, buffer area, that uh, we actually try to see those uh, uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the red land area, we may not build, I mean, we, 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 we usually build like those like, uh, uh, rather low density developments. So having said that, therefore, the area for the fertile garden may not be that, uh, may not be that large area. So I don't think that it cannot survive. 
Um, uh, Ryan Ip, um, just uh, another environmental uh, factor. Um, we've seen a lot of warnings, uh, international warnings, in in recent weeks about uh, about global warming and mm. the effect on, on on climate change and rising sea levels. I mean, it, you know, is it, would it be a sensible move to to build in locations which may be prone to uh, rising sea levels and and possibly flooding? Well, I think um, you know, global warm, global warming and rising sea levels it will affect the whole city, uh, including many new towns that is built by the sea, uh, including both sides of Victoria Harbour. So this is not a district-specific issue, right? The best way to deal with it is to increase the resiliency of you know of, of the potentially affected area, and to that end, new developments actually have an edge to old towns because when you're doing new development, you got the, you, you got the room to apply the latest engineering method you know, and technology to do that. And I think uh, that, that is why, uh, that is exactly why we need uh, better development to deal with rising sea level, not mm. by doing nothing. Doing nothing cannot deal with rising sea level. So talking about sea walls and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, right, right. Okay, well, um, okay, well that brings us to, uh, to the end of this uh, conversation. Thank you very much uh, to our guests this morning. Uh, that was uh, Ryan Yip, you heard there, the head of land and housing research at the R Hong Kong Foundation. And uh, thank you very much also to uh, Dr. Rita Lee, uh, Director of Sustainable Real Estate uh, Research Centre and Associate Professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Xuyan University. And uh, before nine o'clock, uh, we also heard from Albert Lai, the Director of the Conservancy Association. Um, so uh, for the last um, uh, 10 minutes of the programme, uh, we're going to uh, uh, turn to our second topic, and that is... Uh, what seems to be the increasing incidence of the uh, red tide phenomenon um, in Hong Kong waters. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen these red tides or algal blooms uh, around uh, uh, the beaches near Toon Mun and also uh, right in the middle in Victoria Harbour. Um, to talk about this, uh, we have with us uh, on the line uh, Ho Kin Chung, who's chairman of the Association on Harmful Algal, Algal Blooms in the South China Sea and uh, honorary professor at the Department of Geography at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. So um, these the pictures that we've all seen in, in the papers and on, on TV of these red tides, uh, and the, I mean... They look uh, uh, pretty, you know, uh, pretty uh, unsightly, unappealing. Um, but um, then, uh, as my understanding is, then they're, they're not actually that dangerous. Not really that. Actually, a harmful algal bloom. We commonly call it red tide. It can be harmful, but uh, the matter is how harmful it is. Uh, currently, the harm is to the fishermen because you know, it would. Uh, uh, use up all the oxygen in the water and you probably make the fishes die. And so, you know, it would be a warming, you know, to the fishermen, especially for those you know, living in the aquaculture zone. But uh, in terms of toxin, I think, you know, for these species, for the that is the causation species of the uh, current red tide, it is a lot toxic in nature. That means it will not affect the selfish being sold in the market. That's the 
<laughs> yeah, so Mr. Hosey, you were the Department of Geography. Are we seeing an increasing spread of this phenomenon, not just in Hong Kong, but in other parts of the world as well? Is it to yes, do with climate change? I think uh, we should look at the history of red tide in Hong Kong. You know, in 40 or 30 years ago, you know, more of the red tide happened in the, red, uh, in the eastern water of Hong Kong, such as uh, Tolo Harbor and Port Shell and Zhang Bay, etc. And you know, they are you know, mainly caused by the local pollution problem. And but nowadays, we find more of the red tide you know, commonly happen in the western water of Hong Kong, Lee, Jin Wun, and even Tai O, and uh, sometimes it's spread also, also to the southern water of Hong Kong. And I think you know, it has become you know, from a uh, localized uh, phenomenon uh, to a uh, regional problem that is you know, uh, a common uh, impact to the, Pale, uh, to the whole Pale River estuary. And so, you know, nowadays, you know, more of the pollutants are coming from the Pearl River. And so, you know, more of our affected areas are located in the western side of Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, so, if, if you're running a fish farm, then this really is something to worry about? Uh, sure, yeah. Because, you know, as I said, that, you know, that, well, while the algae, you know, they boom, you know, they use up the oxygen, especially at the light time. And so it would be most dangerous in a few hours before the morning. And so, you know, for fishermen, it is advised to inject oxygen uh, mechanically into the water so that, you know, the fish would avoid from dying. Okay, so, so fish farms can do that, yeah? They can actually pump oxygen into the water to keep the fish alive? Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. So other than the fish farm, what is the impact on the marine environment? I think, uh, you know, for the... Uh, Capsaticating beaches, I think, you know, it would also be affected. You know, first of all, you know, uh, uh, just you know, for recreational purposes, if you swim in the water, you know, sometimes the toxin uh, or or or, or this, uh, the the uh, uh, the things you know, being uh, excreted you know, by the reptile organism would affect your skin or even your eyes, and so it would be some problem you know, to the swimmer. No, but what about the marine environment? What, what about things like corals? And, oh, of course, and... you know, that, that would be a disaster to the ecosystem because, you know, algal boom, you actually look at the source, it's come from pollution, and pollution is actually uh, mainly from the two major components, nitrogen and phosphorus, come from the sewage. And so, you know, uh, uncontrolled discharge of sewage you know, in the whole Pearl River Delta, and that would be a big problem. And so you know, for long term, the pollution control is the major uh, uh, measure we have to do. So if the problem is a, a, a regional one, uh, we're talking about um, uh, coming down the Pearl River uh, Delta, um, what, can the, what can our local government, what can the Hong Kong government uh, actually do to try to uh, you know, uh, limit these red tide incidences? Yeah, of course, you know, if we just view it as a regional problem, we can do very little, but in fact, you know, we have a shared duty in environmental protection, and so for Hong Kong, we have to do our own part first, you know, in pollution control, and you know, in the other hand, we have to negotiate in actively uh, to have collaboration with the Kong Tung province, you know, to have the regional pollution control.
Yeah, you suggested it's to do, part of it is to do with poor sewage management. What are people? What are other places doing around the world in terms of sewage management that that help to mitigate this? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, you, you look at the global distribution of wet tie, and you know, unfortunately, your know, wet tie has spread all over the world. Nowadays, you can find wet tie in Florida, in Massachusetts, in uh, northern Europe, and even in Arctic and, and Antarctica, as I observe. And so, it is the uh, global environmental pollution problem that is. Uh, you know, we have to look seriously at how we are able to protect the ocean in the future. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, You're uh, welcome. That, that was, uh, thank you, that was uh, Ho Kin Chung, who's chairman of the Association on Harmful Algal Blooms in the South China Sea and uh, honorary professor at the Department of Geography at the University of Hong Kong. And, um, and before we end uh, this morning's uh, programme, um, a few more emails here uh, relating mostly to uh, our main topic this morning. Um, uh, Paul uh, writes again um, in response to his, uh, uh, to his earlier email and, uh, and uh, comments from one of our guests uh, uh, on the subject of vertical gardens. Uh, agree. It's all about how you manage vertical gardens, as in how much energy and money goes into management uh, unsustainable have a close look at how many uh, or of uh, not most hong kong vertical gardens are, are plastic flowers gardens of plastics uh, this sounds like this could be a, a subject a bigger subject for another day uh, jenny yeah um okay uh, and this one from uh, leslie writes um, while i believe it's important to preserve the wetlands uh, the government also has a care of duty towards its citizens current and future the reality is there is insufficient housing for the population and our population growth all round and within the wetlands area there are redundant areas filled with refuse and junkyards if the development of uh, these areas provides for additional housing units and the government can improve on the existing wetland management, then the government should go ahead and use the rest of it. The northern new territories bordering the mainland already have significant uh, new infrastructure, so this area really makes sense. I just feel the government is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. So let's just get on with it. Uh, that's from uh, Leslie. Um, uh, David writes, all these new properties are being made for China, not Hong Kong. Otherwise, the government would have uh, interfered with the price and all these empty properties in the new territories. They could have been sold cheaper for the Hong Kong people. We need committees to discuss why these empty properties are being held at high prices. And then we need committees so that we can start building on brownfield sites. Why, why are we hell-bent on destroying the wetlands and tourism? <clears throat> and Andrew says, uh, if you believe a mass flight of Hong Kong people to the UK and other bastions of democracy is already underway and will accelerate, leading to the collapse of Hong Kong, why are we worried about a shortage of housing based on historical population forecasts? And uh, this one on a slightly, slightly another subject. This is this one is about uh, Steve Vines, who is who was briefly a former uh, co-host uh, on this program uh, on Backchat, who uh, revealed the other day that he would left Hong Kong, gone back to UK. Steve Vines, obviously a uh, well-known, prominent uh, government critic. Um, 
we had several emails yesterday basically on the lines of uh, good riddance um, this one says uh, this one from Derek says uh, whether or not you agree with the opinions expressed by Steve Vines I think it's sad that someone feels they are no longer safe in this place that we call home uh, that from Derek um, right uh, just before we go to the news summary and uh, morning brew this morning a quick look at the weather it's going to be cloudy with occasional showers thunderstorms and squalls uh, showers will be heavier in some areas later top temperatures will be around uh, 30 degrees at moderate to fresh west to southwesterly winds occasionally strong offshore and on high grounds there will be swells. The outlook, there will still be occasional showers in the next couple of days. The weather will improve gradually during the weekend. It's currently 28 degrees, humidity 88%. Thanks very much to you, Jenny. Thank you very much, Jim. Okay. From February 27th next year, the eligible age of the government $2 public transport fare concession scheme will be lowered to 60. To enjoy the scheme, Hong Kong residents aged 60 to 64 must apply for a JoyU card via the Octopus app or by mail during designated periods. Those born in 1957 can apply from August 2nd to 31st this year. For details, visit the JoyU card webpage at octopus.com.hk slash J-O-Y-Y-O-U or call 2266-2222. The new summary with Vicky Wong. Hong Kong residents returning to the SAR from most parts of the mainland are finding themselves facing two weeks in quarantine as cases continue to rise over the border. The government announced the move last night, a day after imposing restrictions on people arriving from Macau. The World Health Organization has urged wealthy governments to halt plans for coronavirus booster jabs and instead concentrate on improving vaccination rates in poorer countries. Israel has already begun a booster program for older people. Germany and Britain are among those planning to follow suit. And the leader of Hong Kong's cycling team says track star Sarah Lee found the competition tougher than expected in the opening rounds of the Kirin yesterday after a year without international competition. But Chan Kwok Ki said Lee was mentally prepared and had the ability to handle the free races she could potentially face today. I'll have more news in half an hour. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, interpreter of Beethoven, as well as oh shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Welcome to Thursday's flight here on Morning Brew. Good to be back with you. Well, the clock's been ticking. The Summer Olympics is in its final stretch. It's going to end this Sunday. AFP's Danny Hicks will be with me in a few minutes from now, around 9.40, for today's report, live from Tokyo. Any comments you got on our Facebook page or email me, morningbrew at rthk.hk. Thanks for the few we've had so far. Top stuff. After 11, our vet, Dr. David Gething, will make his Thursday house call to talk about fat cats and round hounds. Not just about them porking out too much, but the medical side of it as well. Once again, if you've got any questions for Dave, you know where to find us. After 12, we're off to Abruzzo in Italy for our monthly wine chat with Maestro JC Viennes. Join him on Facebook Live. <laughs> 